Welcome to another episode of Tall Hungry Girl Talks. Today we are talking about healing um, and systems-based healing processes. I have been waiting for this episode for several weeks now. I think it's going to be so helpful to so many people out there, including myself. Um, I have a very special guest, Dr. Shamini Jan. Uh, She is a psychologist, scientist, and social entrepreneur. She is also the founder and director of the Consciousness and Healing Initiative, a collaborative accelerator that connects scientists, health practitioners, innovators, and social entrepreneurs to forward the science and practice of healing. Uh, Dr. Jan's work has been featured in many news and media outlets, including Time, CNN, and U.S. News and World Report. She regularly speaks on these topics in diverse venues, including NATO, TEDx, major universities and medical centers, health-related conferences, and corporations. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining the show. It's my pleasure to hear. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So can you tell me more about the Consciousness and Healing Initiative and the genesis of it? You bet. You know, the Consciousness and Healing Initiative, I always tell people, isn't an institute. A lot of times when, you know, people see CHI, they immediately think institute. We're really a community. We're a collaborative. And we began initially to support the scientists who are studying healing because One thing that I recognized as an academic researcher was that when we turn our questions to things like, what is consciousness and what is the role of consciousness in fostering the healing process, those questions, you know, are evolving questions, but particularly in the scientific and medical community that we find ourselves in, in the Western world, um, I wouldn't say they're not popular, but they're certainly not well understood and they're not really, to be frank, quite Uh, quite strongly supported. So what I was finding with my own research was that I was meeting these amazing tenured professors in the areas of neuroscience, in biophysics, in psychoneuroimmunology, in medicine, that were deeply interested in understanding the role of our own consciousness and healing. And yet they weren't being supported. They couldn't talk a lot with their communities, you know, in academia about their interests. You know, they were afraid people would think they were crazy for even being interested in these kinds of areas. Um, And so I recognized it right away that we needed to support each other in a community where scientists could talk freely and also talk with healing practitioners. Because, you know, as a consciousness and healing initiative, our focus is really exploring what do we know about consciousness and its role to foster healing in ourselves and in others. So it began kind of as a community to, you know, to help make sure that we had deep dialogue between scientists and healers and support the dialogue and as much as we can support the research as well. And it's grown since to really a thriving, interacting community, which is really still led by luminary leaders and thinkers and researchers in healing, um, but also very deeply our practitioners, our leading practitioners who are, you know, have been doing work in healing for decades. And sharing their understandings and their practices. We have a lot of people, too, who join us from the healing and healthcare field, which diverses different forms of medicine, um, both, you know, MDs and naturopaths and chiropractors and acupuncturists, massage therapists, you know, a lot of different healing professionals that are joining us to learn more about the science and practice of healing. We also have educators and artists because, you know, I always like to describe Chi as kind of a place for 
building wisdom through collective alchemy, because it's really through integrating the different streams of wisdom from science as we know it, from practice, from our spiritual leaders and spiritual traditions to, you know, our community leaders, integrating all of that wisdom to say, how do we scale healing? Let's move beyond, you know, the idea of disease thinking and just treating disease and let's move towards wholeness. You know, let's really explore the healing process. Mm-hmm. And are there resources that that I, um, that people can go like, you know, a regular person can go or do you have classes on this or anything like that? Yeah, that you wanted absolutely. To talk about? Yeah, absolutely. So every month, every first Friday of the month, we hold free interactive webinars. Um, so this is great because generally our guests actually jump on live and they, you know, give a presentation. We have some dialogue and there's time also for the folks on the webinar to ask questions. And, and honestly, what I've learned is after doing these webinars now for a couple of years, where we have leaders in clinical psychology and, you know, in the science of healing, all just sort of sharing the basics of what they've learned and what, what it matters for us, right? So basically, you know, what have we found from science and how does that apply to our daily life? And when we have practitioners, we talk about things including, you know, how to work with trauma, how to foster well-being. Um, how do we use things like mantra practice for, you know, for our well-being or meditation or yoga, pranayama practices, energy healing practices, all these kinds of things. So we really explore this both from what do we know about the science and how do we implement it into our daily life. One of the things that we're actually just about to launch in October is um, Ask Me Anything sessions with our experts, including those in, in, you know, in healing practice, especially because we've recognized that even during the webinars, Sometimes there are so many questions, you know, even though we devote like 15 minutes to questions at the end, you know, you just can't get to them all. And in this time when practice is so important, I just want to make sure that everyone feels like, you know, they've got really great tools from leading practitioners in healing that they can use. So we have our, you know, monthly webinars. And then in October, we're also going to have our, um, community-based Ask Me Anything sessions, and all our community members um, who are contributors uh, can, you know, can kind of jump in on that. So it's uh, super fun. Mm-hmm. And they can find that on the CHI website, chi.is? That's right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So if they go to chi.is or chi.is, um, they'll find all the information there. There'll be links to go to the webinars on healing, um, soon the Ask Me Anything sessions as well. Uh, we ask folks to contribute, you know, because we feel like this is definitely a regenerative economy. We're a social profit. That is, you know, we're a 501c3. So in order for us to basically keep things running, we ask folks to, um, you know, to give what they can. We recommend uh, a $9 a month, you know, kind of uh, uh, contribution or 108 a year. 108, of course, is a very um, special and magical number. So for that, you know, they get access to all the webinars in perpetuity whenever they want on demand with, you know, with slides and, you know, all kinds of scientific resources. They get access to all the Ask Me Anything sessions. Um, they also get access to about uh, 50 plus hours of really stellar keynotes from leaders in healing, including Deepak Chopra and Bruce Lipton and you know, many others that are really well known in the healing field. So, and it's just a place for us to gather too as communities. So we mm-hmm. definitely want people to know all of the great cutting edge work that's being done and all of the, you know, the really great practices. 
Um, but it's also just a, a resource space for us to also connect in on a regular basis. Yeah. And, and winter is coming on the East Coast, so I will have a lot of time. So <laughs> looking forward oh, to right. <laughs> Yes. And I know, I know the whole Eastern uh, seaboard will as well. So <laughs> um, yeah, it's a great time to hibernate in and, yes, and learn some new tools. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, complementary medicine doesn't really seem, you know, you made mention of this earlier. It doesn't really fit in with the current scientific paradigm in this country. You know, I feel like people say you can't measure it and, and stuff like that. Um, I know that in my care provider experience, um, you know, my my mental health is often not taken into account. I think I've increasingly seen um, that happening. But I think, you know, when I was in my early 20s, it certainly wasn't happening. And it felt like, you know, providers often thought that there was a disconnection between your brain and your body. And, and you know, do you think that this contributes to increased levels of suffering or increased drug use? And do you think that this is changing? It seems like it slowly is. Um, but what are your thoughts on that? Well, yes, I, I appreciate you kind of sharing your experience because it's really real. It's very felt. And, you know, those of us who are in the healing and health field, we sometimes forget that, you know, there's still a really strong group of folks in mainstream medicine and science that are just getting used to the idea that the mind and the body are connected in profound ways that affect our health. And, you know, it wasn't but 50 years ago that, you know, literally the field of psychoneuroimmunology, which I always joke and say is a very fancy, you know, wordy term for basically exploring the connection between the mind and the body. You know, 50 years ago, that field didn't even exist. So, yeah, it's kind of wild that at this point, we have so much data showing how our mental and emotional state affect our health. And yet, it almost seems like it's controversial in some circles. It's not. It's very well documented. So are things like, you know, socioeconomic inequities and their effects on health because of trauma. So, you know, there is so much research at this point pointing to things like, how strongly our social connections foster our health, how strongly our mental well-being can foster prevention of disease, um, you know, how strongly being in um, certain social circumstances where there are high risks of trauma can affect us for, you know, decades down the line. This is not really controversial. One of the issues is it's just not widely shared across the community, both in terms of, you know, our regular community, right, just everybody we talk to, and in the medical community. Now, having said that, I am definitely seeing progress. I have been at UC San Diego now for, you know, a couple of decades, and, you know, first as a student and now as faculty in the Department of Psychiatry. And I remember taking a psychopathology class with my fellow med students. I was in the clinical psychology program there. And the clinical psychology and the med students both took the psychopathology class at the medical school together. And at that time, the resident was literally telling everyone the dogma that if someone had a major depressive episode once, they would need to be on medication the rest of their lives. So this oh, is what the medical students yeah. were being taught, what, some um, 15 years ago or so, okay? So I remember thinking at that point, even with the, everything that I had learned, that that couldn't be right, right? And, and that's part of the issue is that sometimes the medical students aren't privy to all the data, right? 
So now there's even more data suggesting that that's just not the case. What that medical resident was teaching the students was completely false. And in, and in fact, I mean, if we really want to sort of dip our toes in the water of potential medical controversy, there is very, very strong evidence coming from systematic reviews which compile data across dozens and dozens of studies. These, this systematic review was conducted by our colleagues in Harvard University demonstrating that in the case of depression, what we currently call the placebo effect accounts for about 75% of the effects on depression. And, you know, this has been shown in, you know, this has been reported in Newsweek and, and other places in Time Magazine across the years. Um, but I remember as a clinician seeing the, I think it was Newsweek when this came out, maybe it was even 10 years ago or something. And the title of it was, Why Antidepressants Don't Work, which was a terrible title. <laughs> Because what the title should have said is the power of your mind to alleviate your own depression is vast, right? So it, it's not so much, the story in my mind is not so much about disempowerment again. Oh God, now the drugs don't work. What are we going to do? You know, the story was really, wow, when we believe that we can get better and we wholeheartedly and have hope can believe yeah. the, and have hope. Exactly. We stimulate the internal healing process that exists in every biological system. Okay, so in science, we call this salutogenesis. So if we think of the word pathogenesis, it's the study of disease. Salutogenesis is the study of healing. And, you know, you don't need much to just kind of go outside and look around and look at the plants and look at the trees and recognize that everything follows a cycle and that there is inherent in every biological system a capacity for us to right ourselves, right? There is a there is a healing capacity that exists. That's why when we cut our fingers, you know, generally, unless the cut is super deep, we may need stitches, but the body heals itself, right? The mind can heal itself too. And as we move forward with healing our emotions, healing our traumas, you know, healing our environment, healing, you know, the way that we interact with people, we begin to see those healing effects show up in all aspects of our life, including our physical body. So there is a deep, deep mind-body connection, and and that is not fiction. That is absolute fact. Yeah. Yeah, that, that study that you noted, I, that was actually in one of my questions <laughs> that I was going to ask about the placebo <laughs> effect, that synergy right there. Um, so when, how do people... I guess, still have hope if there is no placebo effect, if they're not, you know, taking um, an antidepressant that actually really probably isn't working, but because, you know, or, you know, they're part of a study where they're testing whether a placebo effect works. Like, how can you heal if you're not, you know, in this group and just independent sure. of that? So so we have to kind of break down what a, what a so-called placebo effect is. In my book that's coming out with Sounds True Publications next fall, I have a whole chapter on this, and I describe it as placebo equals heal. Heal stands for holistic elements that activate life force. Mm. You know, I use the term life force because, you know, we, and when we get to the biofield, we'll explain why I use that term. But you can basically say holistic elements that activate healing because, when we break down placebo, we learn that there are several factors that influence our healing, really every moment, okay? So it's not just about going into the doctor's office and getting a pill, because what we find is that our expectations, that is whether we 
believe that we're going to be healed, whether we're going to get better, whether we're going to feel better, that plays a huge role in our healing process. Conditioning, which basically refers to the memory, you can say, of your body-mind in response to something matters. So here's an example. Let's say you have a nighttime ritual and every time you, you know, go to bed, you have a cup of herbal tea. That's relaxing. Well, your body-mind kind of gets into the frame of that. So let's say you're starting to prepare your tea. You know, uh, you've had it before. You've been having it for weeks. You notice that your body generally relaxes. Your body is going to automatically start to relax just while you pour the tea. So, you know, other examples are like if you've gotten a massage and you've, you know, you've laid on the massage table and your body has relaxed when you have had a massage. The moment you get on that massage table again, your body is already going to go into a state of getting ready to relax. So this is what we mean by conditioning, right? Part of it is conscious, some of it is subconscious. So that plays a role in your healing. That's another placebo element. Like right? going to the like dentist. It's, element. it's the opposite. Going to the dentist would be an opposite effect of this. Yes. Yeah. 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 And we can talk about nocebo, which is exactly the opposite of placebo and is actually very powerful in a moment. But the other aspects of the placebo response that are important for us to know because we can use them every day are meaning and ritual. So, you know, in the case of making a cup of tea, as I noted, that's a ritual. We are engaging in healing or non-healing rituals every day. So, sure, when we go to the doctor's office and we see a white coat and our blood pressure goes up, that actually does happen. That's been documented in the literature many, many times. That's a healing ritual. It's not having the desired effect. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the context for some people of going into the doctor's office. Um, but if you go to shamanic healing practices, they have different kinds of rituals. We all create rituals every day. So simply by creating our own healing ritual, which may look like sitting quietly in nature for 10 minutes a day or practicing yoga, um, you know, a certain amount of times a day or a certain amount of times a week or going for a run, you know, these kinds of things. These are all healing rituals and they serve to kind of provide a clue to the body. I'm engaging in something that's good for my health and, you know, I'm going to ready myself for a healing response. So this is very real. And then, then the last one I'll mention is relationships. So there have been many studies at this point demonstrating that when we have friendly and positive interactions with our practitioners, for example, our health practitioners, it affects our immunity, right? It actually mm. affects, um, you know, wow. how our body responds. So all of these factors, we can even take them out of the doctor's office and say, when we have healthy relationships, when we create healing rituals, when we set our minds for a positive healing response and we allow our bodies to respond to the healing response so that the next time we do it, the effect is even stronger. These are all the ways that we can use what we've learned from placebo for our own health every day. Mm, okay. So what does the science of placebo and um, consciousness and well-being teach us about fostering our own success that, that we can take control of some of it? Would that be correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, you know, there are those that will basically say our thoughts shape reality. And it just depends on, you know, how metaphysical you want to get, you know, how into the, the spiritual dimensions you want to talk about it. But even just if we stick with the data for a minute from placebo research, what it's showing us is, again, that expectation, that mindset of what I want to see, you know, even from a behavioral standpoint, when our mindset, you know, is is directed towards success or failure, we're going to filter things. 
so that we create that success or failure. And so, you know, speaking of nocebo response, for example, if we are absolutely sure in our minds that medicine isn't going to help or that we're going to fail or all of that, then we kind of set ourselves up for that. We narrow the stream of our consciousness and the stream of our filtering so that we're only going to look for things that tell us that we're failing. Right? Mm-hmm. Whereas if we actually say, you know, I'm going to succeed, I'm going to persevere, you know, whatever it is, I'm going to get through this. You know, it's not like telling yourself a lie or being Pollyanna about it and not seeing the reality. Okay, we have to see reality for what it is. I mean, you know, it's not like fooling yourself in any way. But when you set yourself with a positive mindset, let's say, I'm going to heal, you know, from this particular disease or depression or anxiety, you know, whatever it is I'm suffering with, I know I can pursue this, I can persevere through it, you know, I'm going to make a plan. I'm going to create a plan of action. I'm going to get my support mechanisms in place. I'm going to give myself space and time to breathe. You know, you start actually planning for your success that way because you've already seen it. You've already visualized it. You've, you, you know, you've already kind of created that reality in your mind. And so your whole being is oriented towards that positive reality and making it happen. Mm-hmm. It almost reminds me of how naive I was in my 20s and the beauty of being naive. Like I took risks and thought I could accomplish things that I really had no business accomplish, you know, t- even going for. And then I did. But really because yeah. I I thought that I could because I was so naive to know any better, it almost seems like that that's a little bit similar like just yeah so in that case what it is is you weren't you weren't conditioned out of it right you yes. were open to the field of all possibilities as yes. Deepak would say you know one of my colleagues yeah. would say you know you've widened yourself to the to the streams of all possibilities and you simply don't even know enough to take no for an answer because it's not even about fighting and not taking no for an answer it's simply that everything exists in the here and now and we're going to plug into that stream of consciousness that's going to guide us to what we want to see Mm-hmm. It's really that simple. So that's the beautiful thing about naivety is like, why not? Yeah. You know, instead of why, it's just sort of like, why not? Why yeah. Why can't this happen? There's mm-hmm. no reason why it can't happen. This is what I want to, to do. This is where I feel like I'm at service. And, you know, and then you just go do it. You're just not in your own way. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um. So you've studied uh, psychoneuroimmunology, which is the study of the effect of the mind on health and resistance to disease. Hopefully I said that that right. Um, this is a fairly new field as I understand it. Can you tell me more about it and some of what you learned from studying this field? You bet. So as I mentioned, psychoneuroimmunology, you know, we can break that down obviously into three words, psyche, which, you know, many people will call the mind, but also can be translated into the spirit. We think about it as psychology. Um, Neuro, which refers to, you know, the neural, the brain, generally, right, neurons, and immunology. So we're really looking at the links between our spirit, our mind, our emotions, the brain, and what we might also call the central nervous system, which is the brain and the spinal cord, and the immune system. And there is a companion field of study that is called psychoneuroendocrinology. Mm. And here's the important thing. To know these words don't really you know they're nice fancy words that are really hard to say i always <laughs> joke that if you can say psychoneuroimmunology 10 times really fast you can get your degree yeah. <laughs> it's not the. It's, i'll practice it's after this word. after this interview <laughs> right <laughs> it's harder than you think mm-hmm. okay? <laughs> what those 
what the data is showing us from these from this field of study is basically this. As we had talked about before, there is a profound connection between, first of all, our brain and our immune system, which we didn't even know 50 years ago. We didn't believe the brain was connected with the immune system. I mean, that's how much we didn't know back then. There's, right. So now we've learned that that is. Yeah. I, I understand I mean, that there's about, right? there's immune microvessels in the brain, correct? Correct. Yeah. It was just a, a couple of years ago and it was a paper in Nature where they found that there are actually lymphatic microvessels in the brain. And that's crazy talk. You know, if you talk to somebody 10 years ago, they'd say there are no lymphatic microvessels in the brain. The brain and the immune system are different systems. So what we're learning in a nutshell is that all of these systems are interconnected. Okay, so when I, you know, when my neurons are firing, it's also firing my vagus nerve, for example, which is the biggest cranial nerve in my body, which happens to connect with pretty much every other organ in my body. So when my neurons are firing, I'm affecting all these organs in my body. But not only that, it turns out that the organs in my body are also sending information to my brain through the vagus nerve, for example. So when my stomach contracts or when I have indigestion or even the microbiota in my gut are sending signals called, you know, through immune transmitters, which are sometimes called cytokines, for example, that end up sending signals through the vagus nerve that influence the way the neurons in my brain are firing, that influence the way my neurotransmitters are going to release. So all of these ideas that we had that we have like one separate organ system and it does its thing and then there's this other organ system and it does its thing and the immune system does its thing and, you know, and they don't really talk to each other. That's just not true. They actually all talk to each other. And it's something about the interconnection between those systems that drive health. Mm-hmm. Like for a very simple example, we know that, you know, you've probably heard of the stress hormone cortisol, right? Yes. Most people have heard of that hormone, right? So like everything in the body or many things in the body, it follows a rhythm throughout the day, right? So it, you know, actually for cortisol, it kind of peaks about 30 minutes after we wake up in terms of the levels of cortisol in our body. And then it kind of slowly declines throughout the day. Well, that's important because cortisol, among many things, regulates our inflammation. So if, if cortisol, which is a hormone in our body, isn't functioning properly, it's going to affect our immune system. Right. And, and, and modern medicine knows this to a degree. You know, they've developed drugs to kind of deal with inflammation by giving you steroids and things like that. But it turns out that mind body practices can also influence your hormonal system and your hormonal regulation, which in turn also affects your immunity. So when we when we put the psyche into psychoneuroimmunology, what we begin to learn is it's not only through pharmaceutical drugs that we can have effects on the body. We can have effects on the body through breathing, through stretching, through movement, through meditation, through social interactions. We And what it teaches us then is that we have tremendous power on our health. We have tremendous power to prevent disease and we have tremendous power to work with disease if we have it simply by engaging our psyche in the process. Mm-hmm. Wow. So... I mean, I guess that leads me leads me into the next question, which you've really more or less addressed. But how does consciousness catalyze the healing process? So, yeah, I'll I'll just put a question yeah. mark on that. 
So, yeah, so we've talked about this kind of on the psychological level, right, and the mental level, the mindset, the emotions, you know, and that's kind of where most of us in mainstream science kind of, you know, that's about as far out as most people go. Because the truth is all of that stuff can be easily measured. The controversial area um, that, you know, we are engaged in where we think the, the real missing link between how our minds and our bodies connect is something that we call the biofield. And the biofield are fields of energy and information that guide our health. So here we're talking about things that are electromagnetic that we can measure. And let me give you a really easy example. You know, when you go to the doctor, you may have had the experience where they put an electrode on your heart. You might be too young for them to have actually done this to you, but, you know, <laughs> or maybe you've had a parent or a loved one or somebody who's gone into the hospital and they've taken an EKG, right, an electrocardiogram to measure the waves of your heart. They're actually measuring electromagnetic waves from your heart. And using that information, they're actually able to determine whether your heart is healthy or not. Okay. So that's an example of a biofield. That's an electromagnetic field that's coming out of your body that we can read and tells us about our health. So, and there are many examples of that, right? EEG, other things, you know, brain waves, these kinds of things. There's also a whole other aspect to the biofield that we call, um, subtle, right? So this is what has been described in basically every spiritual and medical, cultural medical tradition for millennia. And these are subtle aspects of energy that are sometimes called chi, ki, prana, you know, many different terms in many different cultures. We believe that the biofield in both measurable and immeasurable ways, currently immeasurable ways, is really the key to understanding how consciousness catalyzes the healing process. Because you know, where does, where does the thought come from? Where does an emotion come from? How does the emotion kind of influence my physiology? We can look at this at the chemical level, but we can also look at it from a vibrational level. And so, you know, there are people doing that. You know, I, for example, have done clinical studies examining what people would call energy healing. It was actually laying on of hands. Um, you know, we call a biofield therapy for fatigue in breast cancer survivors. And what we found were profound, this was a randomized, placebo-controlled, you know, clinical trial that's published in the journal Cancer. I think it was published in 2012. If anyone, like, Googles my name in Cancer 2012, it'll probably come up. Um, in a nutshell, what we found, and not just with my study, but many more, and we detailed all of this on our website at the Consciousness and Healing Initiative. There's lots of resources I can point folks to if they're interested. We have found both with my study and other studies that there really is a there there with these types of energy healing practices that they not only decrease things like pain. In my study, they decreased fatigue tremendously in our fatigue breast cancer survivors. They also influence their cortisol variability or those di those daily changes in cortisol rhythms that I was talking about earlier. They actually improved, but our mock group didn't show that effect. And when we put in all these placebo variables, it didn't show the effect. So placebo has an effect on our health, for sure. Emotions have an effect on our health, for sure. So does our energy. So does our actual biofield. So there are all these multiple layers of basically studying how consciousness affects the healing process. We can talk about it from the emotional level. We can talk about it from the mindset level. We can go all the way to, you know, what we can call the vibrational level, the subtle awareness level. So we just get to decide, you know, what aspects of our consciousness we want to tune into. Do I want to tune into my thoughts? 
Do I want to tune into one of my emotions? Do I want to tune into subtle awareness, the, you know, the feeling of energy in my body? By tuning into all of these things, we get to basically, you know, we have the keys to start mastering our health. Mm-hmm. Wow. So fascinating. Um, you know, I, over the years, I think, you know, on TV and, you know, you hear news stories or um, just in my own life where people are in these like long term, enduring, stressful situations, perhaps traumatic situations and um, or, you know, perhaps they'll have a loved one die, some sort of like trauma that's happened and they themselves will end up developing cancer or an illness or something like that. Um, so to me, that's, you know, that's proof that I feel like, you know, stress does cause illness. Um, but one of the questions that I wanted to ask you is, you know, with this in mind, are there costs of early childhood trauma or major life trauma on the physiological system? And if so, what are they and how do they manifest in the body and mind? Yeah, absolutely. So some great work has been done, you know, over the years by Dr. Steve Cole at UCLA, looking at the effects of early childhood adversity and other types of socioeconomic inequities on, you know, basically epigenetic signaling in the body. And what he has found, you know, by looking at the data is that indeed, it's almost like the body in early childhood forms a set point in, in the way that proteins get expressed in the body. So that when we experience significant early childhood trauma, our bodies are more kind of set to have more of an inflammatory state. That is, we produce more inflammatory cytokines, which produce inflammation in the body, which help to contribute to disease, you know, including things like heart disease um, and potentially cancer as well. So those effects are very real and we see them all the way down to the signaling of micro RNA in ourselves. And, you know, Steve Cole is one and there are many others, you know, and again, Steve Cole is in the field of psychoneuroimmunology. He's at the Cousin Center for Psychoneuroimmunology at UCLA. I, you know, I, anyone who's interested in that research should definitely look him and, and the work up there. Um, the big question I think is, first of all, obviously, how do we prevent that trauma from happening in the first place? Because, you know, we need to do that. Um, there's no reason why children um, should be suffering the way that they are in certain environments. So, but also, you know, for we, all of us have experienced trauma, like all of us to some degree, some of us much more than others. So trauma is a part of life. Suffering is a part of life. And we may also ask ourselves then, what can we do once we've had these experiences to mitigate the downstream effects on our mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual health, right? We're all kind of going through some trauma right now with the things that are going on with the pandemic and climate change and, you know, the sociopolitical machinations, you know, worldwide. Like, there's a lot going on. And I think most people are feeling overwhelmed. And many are actually, you know, it's, the experience can be downright traumatic. I mean, for some children, it's downright traumatic, right? So... Then the question also becomes, how do we mitigate that? How do we, how do we work with our suffering in a way that we can learn from it um, and not have it necessarily get the best of us, literally get the best of us, suck our juices away, suck our joy away, you know, suck, suck away our health? Because, you know, that's, that's not how we want to be. We, we don't want to live in misery. So, you know, there are many, many, many answers to that. 
but we can go back again to the wisdom of the ancients and the very meaning of healing itself, which is the restoration of harmony. So healing isn't really about getting rid of the disease. Healing is about fostering harmony in myself, with my mind, my emotions, my body, but also my environment, right? So the more we engage in healing practices, including self-practices, like meditation, like prayer, like yoga, you know, like, you know, Qigong, like, you know, so many different kinds of, like walking in nature and being in nature. There's so many ways to engage in healing practices. We kind of have to at this time, especially when we're talking about mitigating trauma and mitigating the effects of suffering on our health, we simply must up-level our time spent in healing practices. And the cool thing is we get to choose, right? Because the data actually suggests that whether you're doing Qigong, whether you're doing meditation, whatever, whether you're doing mindfulness meditation, mantra meditation, um, you know, prayer, all of these things have beneficial effects. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to just choose one. We can pick something that feels consistent with us, that seems consistent with our values, with our culture, you know, and we just commit to the practice. Yeah. It makes a huge difference. Yeah, no, definitely. I, um, you mentioned Deepak Chopra earlier and, and he's, he's one of my favorites. I'm doing, um, his, well, I, I did the 21 day abundance, um, podcast or, um, rather a uh, meditation. Um, and I'm doing another round of it. I liked it so much, but when I was doing, you know, you talked about rituals when I was doing that every day, I looked forward to it. It was like my little slice of peace. And, you know, mm-hmm. I've suffered from anxiety on and off my entire life. And, I tell you that 21 days that I was doing um, the meditation, I don't think I've ever felt better. And I was like, okay, I have to instill this into my in my daily practice. And so now, you know, I, I'm trying to do that again. Um, you know, you mentioned, Beautiful. yeah, yeah. You mentioned, um, you know, a lot of a lot of um, you know healing practices that that people can do. Are there any specific things that you would recommend, especially during this time for people that are suffering from high anxiety or depression, you know, feelings of angst, um, especially with the pandemic and the political climate? Yeah. Yeah. You know, for anxiety and depression, first of all, just taking a really strange, you know, I'm a clinical psychologist, I think I mentioned, so just a very basic thing that we should all be doing is moving and getting out into nature. And, you know, this helps with both depression and anxiety. And in terms of a mind-body-spirit practice, when we get into nature, what I would recommend is a practice called grounding. And this is, again, inherent in every culture. But it's really simple. It's literally standing on the ground. And if you've got shoes, it's fine. If you, if you have rubber-soled shoes, try to maybe take them off. If you can stand barefoot in the earth, it's amazing. And you literally just foster an energy exchange with the earth by breathing in and directing your breath or your energy, however you experience it, down to your feet and feeling that connection with the earth. And it's almost like the earth is saying, I've got your back. You know, you can actually, whether you're a visual person or a kinesthetic person, however you experience things, you can allow yourself to simply drop your worries, just like the leaves on the trees are doing right now, right? So we can learn from the trees. We're going to drop our worries, drop our anxieties, drop our fears, and just drop them into the earth for the ultimate recycling, mm-hmm. right? And 
that that grounding practice actually really helps because it helps us first of all get in our physical bodies a lot of times when we're depressed or anxious we're in our mind so much that we're not paying attention to our body and our body signals so simply by doing that practice we learn to connect with our body and feel our body but bioenergetically we're also getting filled up by the earth so we're actually being nurtured and supported by the earth so that's like practice number one the other thing that i recommend to people if you're not used to doing meditation or yoga or anything like that if you are great pick something like that and and you know try to be consistent in your practice even if you can do it 15 minutes a day or something fantastic like you said just make it a ritual part of your ritual you know you'll look forward to it so that for sure and then also explore creativity because creativity is very much connected with our life force energy with prana with chi and so Sometimes we may not think of ourselves as creative beings, but the truth is everyone is a creative being. So whether it's like making a cool meal or putting together some crazy collage or writing a poem or journaling or singing or dancing around the house, you know, just doing something to kind of let your mind go and just be free and creative and channel um, is really, really great. It really helps to foster your well-being and just sort of cleanse you from, you know, the thoughts of the day. Mm -hmm. I rearranged my furniture. (laughs) Believe me, I just moved into a new house and I'm doing the same thing. It it brings me so much happiness. It brings me so much happiness. That's like my... It's like everything is new again, right? Yes, it is. Anytime I get like um, an urge to buy anything new, I'm like, hmm, let me reorganize. And it, yeah, it does bring a lot of peace. And doing this podcast with people like yourself brings a lot of, you know, creative energy and peace. So, um. Good. That's great. Yes. Well, thank you so much for um, for joining me today. I think that this was so insightful and hopefully, um, you know, it's opening people's minds to consider the the power that they have within themselves. Um, Yeah. Do you have any last thoughts for everyone before we go? No. Just um, thanks for listening and, you know, do know that all the power to heal yourself and others lies within. And, um, you know, we have lots of resources, both on my personal website and um, our nonprofit consciousness and healing initiative website. So just feel free to dig in and explore and enjoy the journey. Awesome. Thank you. And you can find her website. Um, it's shaminijan.com, S-H-A-M-I-N-I-J-A-I-N.com, and then chi.is. Thanks again for joining another episode of Tall Hungry Girl Talks. You can find me uh, at tallhungrygirl.com and Apple Podcasts, Tall Hungry Girl Talks, and Spotify as well. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.